Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is September 28th, a Monday, and once again, uh, Trump, of course, is dominating the news, but the climate is back in the news. Climate is big politics, and my state, California, is unfortunately once again burning. So what to make of this? What to make of our new climate politics? Uh, my guest today, Daniel Jurgen, is one of the world's leading authorities on energy. Many of you will have heard of him because of his best-selling Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The, the Prize. Uh, he has a new book out, The New Map, uh, a map of the early 21st century energy geopolitics. Uh, Daniel, um, the new map. Let me begin with a perhaps a dumb question. What was the old map? Well, the old map, the new map is about really just seeing our way through the disruptions. The new map of energy and geopolitics. The old map uh, was a world in which the U.S. imported 60% of its oil, in which uh, the geopolitical alignments were very different, indeed, in which uh, globalization was the watchword rather than the fragmentation of the world that we're seeing today. Uh, and it was a world in which climate was not as big an issue as it is today. So all those have come together along with the changes in technology. So the old map was the world of your, of your book, The Prize. That is a, what, a, a, a late 20th century book in which the Middle East was, was more central. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's that's right. I mean, it's very striking to me when I look back at the prize. I mean, it's a, you know, it's an epic story, but China hardly plays uh, a role in it. The Middle East is central. And now we're in a time when you can have Iranian drones attack the most important infrastructure facility in the whole world in terms of oil in Saudi Arabia. And instead of panicking the oil market for weeks or months, you have panic in the oil market for 18 or 24 hours. And it kind of shrugs it off because of, among other things, the real change in the position of the United States. Well, the position of the United States on oil, of course, is a complicated one. Uh, this photo perhaps somehow captures that, although uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure Barack Obama uh, is in the business of pumping the oil out himself. What has happened, Daniel? And, 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 and this is one of the core pieces of your narrative uh, in the new map. What has happened over the last 20 years to make America a more important player or a more central player in the global energy business? Well, yeah, that picture is in the first part of the book, which is America's map. And I talk about China, Russia's map and so forth. But right there, uh, that was uh, Obama at the beginning of the shale revolution, saying that he was going to build, get the lower third of a big pipeline called the Keystone Pipeline System built because gasoline prices were $5 a gallon. And he went down there and gave a speech that we're gonna approve lots of pipelines. What's happened since then, the US has gone from being the world's largest importer, we've left that honor to China now, 
and instead has become the world's number one oil producer, ahead of Saudi Arabia, ahead of Russia. Now, I'm not a, a climate expert like you, Daniel, but uh, you know this better than I do. The shale issue is a deeply political one. Uh, are you suggesting then that the, the shale quote-unquote revolution in the United States has been a success? Won't that anger some people on the left, the Bill McKiddens of the world, the, the Green New Deal crowd? Yeah, I think it sure will, uh, and it does. But the reality is that there are 280 million automobiles in the United States, and about 279 million of them run on oil. And if we weren't uh, producing oil, and those money staying in this country, creating jobs in this country, creating uh, factories, investment, and so forth, that money would end up in a sovereign wealth fund of some other country in some other hemisphere, and we would be importing more oil. So, you know, as long as we're in the business as a country of consuming oil, it's better to produce it in the United States and keep the money and the jobs here than go overseas. And if we said, you know, let's ban fracking, as some were saying or do say, that is really an import more oil policy. And the people who would be thrilled with that would be Saudi Arabia and Russia. Dan, um my old friend uh, Gavin Newsom, the current governor of the of California, my state, um, has been on the show several times. He announced last week that California would eliminate gas guzzling cars by twenty thirty five. Uh, well, well he didn't, Andrew. He didn't quite say that. He said that no new cars. So the average car that stays on the road in the United States is twelve years. So there'll still be a lot of those gasoline consumers. And I know some people are talking about opening auto dealers in Nevada, but that's, a, that's a, I think that's a joke. Are you I, suggesting then that, that Newsom is misleading us or are you suggesting he's making a mistake? Are you suggesting that perhaps uh, his, his bullishness on renewables, on a, a post-oil automotive industry is misguided? No, I think it's going to take time. I mean, in, in the new map, Say that you know probably by 2050, a third. We have about 1.4 billion cars on the road today. By 2050, around the world, two billion by 2050. Maybe a third of them will be electric. About 60 to 80 percent of the new cars that are sold will be electric. So this transition is going on. It's a question of how fast. Now, when California puts its foot, I hate to say, on the gas, uh, that certainly sends uh, uh, the. the, the the impact of that is felt in Detroit, and automobile makers are, you know, shifting General Motors and others towards more electric cars. So it's a question of timing as to when it will happen. Dan, your new book focuses on the geopolitics of the new energy business, and the new map is about the the the, the, the trinity of great powers in the in the energy world. A new trinity. Uh, perhaps you might talk about this three-way tussle for control of the world's energy economy. Well, Andrew, it used to be that, you know, we talk about OPEC and non-OPEC. But now, and it really became clear in 2020 when oil prices collapsed because as a part of this, what I call in the book, the economic dark age that came with COVID and the shutdown of the economy, uh, it was really, of all people, the United States who stepped forward to and a re, uh, to kind of get a floor under oil prices because of its importance to the U.S. economy. 
And it really shows that the three, it's not OPEC versus non-OPEC, it's the big three, as you say, I like your, your use of the term, the Trinity, it's the United States, it's Russia, and it's Saudi Arabia. These are the three big ones who will determine uh, what happens uh, by their policies. And, you know, it'd be quite different under Joe Biden than it would be under Donald Trump, but it is just a different configuration. And I think people don't realize how much the whole power system, as you put it, has changed because of the change of the U.S. position. But are you are you suggesting that the big three then is 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 China, the U.S., and um, well, Saudi, no. or are you suggesting that it's Russia, China, and the United States? No, it's. Let's reconfigure that. The big three in terms of oil production is Saudi Arabia, Russia, and number one, the United States. But what that great picture that you're showing now of, um, of uh, Vladimir Putin cooking something up with Xi Jinping, the president of China, what they're actually doing is making Russian pancakes in that photograph is really symbolic of the other big geopolitical factor that I talk about in this world, which is this new alignment between Russia and China. And it's happening for many reasons. Energy is a very important part of it. But at the same time, those guys were making their blinis. Chinese forces, for the first time, were participating in Russian military exercises, the biggest exercises since the early 1980s in the Soviet space. Uh, and their, their relationship is getting closer uh, and closer, their personal relationship and their relationship with countries. And as I say, part of it's because Russia is an important su supplier of energy to China. But that's one of the reasons. The other, and of course, another big reason is their common opposition and antipathy to the United States. Yeah, I was particularly intrigued by your analysis of Russia, reading it today with all this news of, of, of Trump's taxes or lack of taxes and increasing suggestion that the KGB money was somehow channeled to his businesses. Um, Putin's wealth and his entire economy is, 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 is rooted in, in oil and gas. Is that fair? Well, yeah, I would say it's about, four, normally it's 40 to 50% of government revenues. The other day he was complaining that it was down to 30%, price went down and so forth. Uh, and it's a big source of GDP. I mean, Russia is a big economy. Well, it's, but it's not that big. It's striking that Russia's a, you know, Putin has reasserted Russia is a great power. You know, there he is as a judoist. Uh, he, he uses judo in international relations to look for other people's weaknesses and then flip them as he's doing in that uh, in that picture. But um, his economy is actually somewhat larger than Spain's and somewhat smaller than Italy's. So he's done very well as a, you know, playing judo in international relations and making Russia a, a big and significant uh, uh, player. The key, though, I, it seems in the new map is, is China and this new incredibly complicated and problematic relationship between uh, China and the United States. How is energy shaping or reshaping the relations between the United States and China? Well, let me say first, I mean, you're quite right. I mean, the biggest geopolitical problem in the 21st century is the relationship between China and the United States. And you know the terms you, you hear now are strategic rivals, great power competitions, which has echoes of the, of the years before the First World War. Um, the Jackie Chan photograph, I mean, I'm very proud. I'm the only book on energy ever. 
and geopolitics, I'm sure, that has a picture of Jackie Chan in it. And the reason the picture of Jackie Chan is there, you haven't asked me, but I'll tell you anyway. That's a movie called Kung Fu Yoga. And that's a joint Indian-Chinese production about an Indian and a Chinese archaeologist who are seeking buried treasure together. And their cooperation, they say, is in the spirit of the Belt and Road uh, Initiative of China. And the Belt and Road Initiative is their $1.4 trillion program to connect their economy to Central Asia, South Asia, Europe, and in a sense, move China to be more the Middle Kingdom in the global economy in a much, it's already a big role, an even bigger role. And, you know, so in so many, you, you know, in, up until about four or five years ago, the emphasis U.S. presidents would talk about constructive engagement and a good relationship with a change in China. You don't hear that in Washington from Democrats or Republicans. And you hear some, you know, and the same the tone has changed in China, too. So uh, it's a very complex problem because at the same time, we're, we and the world economy are so interconnected with China. And energy looms large in several respects. Uh, it looms large. I, I write a lot about the South China Sea and China's uh, uh, assertion that the Ch South China Sea belongs to China. It happens to be the most important sea route in the world uh, for trade. It also happens to be the way China gets a substantial part of its oil, and it worries about the U.S. Navy if there's a conflict over Taiwan interdicting their oil. Uh, it shows up in that Belt and Road with that Jackie Chan movie uh, because energy, securing energy is a really big deal for China. They import, you know, we import 60% of our oil. We're done with that. China imports 75% of its oil. It's the world's largest energy consumer. It worries about the strategic uh, dependence on that. And part of this re growing relationship with uh, uh, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping and China and Russia is rooted not in the old, you know, Marx and Lenin, it's rooted in oil and gas. Dan, what about the role of the rest of the world uh, and particularly uh, international coalitions on, on climate change. Are you taking these seriously in the Absolutely. new Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think there, there are two things to say about the rest of the countries. One is I find when I was traveling, can't travel now, in countries at senior levels, you found more and more countries saying, we don't want to have to choose between the U.S. and China. So that weighs on the mind of a lot of leaders in countries where they feel this polarization. But that picture you're showing there is a Paris... Uh, climate conference of 2015, December 2015. And in the new map, I say the energy world divides into two eras, before Paris and after Paris. And the kind of goals of net zero carbon, as the term that's used by 2050, great moving to a much lower carbon uh, uh, economy, uh, is something that has become part of government policies, company policies, and, and, and investment decisions by large financial institutions. So that's a very important reality that I talk about in the new map and you see, you know, you see that shift going on. Dan, the November election is likely to be determined in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, certainly in the areas which are still producing, manufacturing American automobiles. Where should the American automotive industry be in this new map? That, that's, you know, you're just showing Mary Barra, who's the uh, uh, CEO of General Motors. And in discussions I have with her, I quote in the book, she said her goal is 
zero collisions, zero emissions, zero emissions and zero congestion. And zero emissions means that she's a, even before she became CEO of General Motors, she was a proponent of the electric car and she's moving GE in that direction. Uh, also, of course, self-driving cars and uh, ride hailing all come together in, uh, in what I you use the term triad, another triad in a change in transportation. You know, will we have, you know, a different automobile system? Those three things come together and change the business model that's been the business model of the industry since Henry Ford. And, uh, you know, you can see if those pieces come together, uh, you might have companies that own large fleets of electric cars that come and pick you up and drop you off somewhere. And uh, the question is, who will own those uh, fleets? And will they be, the term I came up with was auto tech to try and describe that kind of different kind of future. That in the November election, uh, the environment and the idea of the Green, Green New Deal will play a role. It's not entirely clear still where Biden stands on that. Do you see the idea of a Green New Deal being more and more central, not only in your new map of the world outside America, but also within America? Well, I think, you know, Joe Biden has a $2 trillion climate plan. Donald Trump does not have a $2 trillion climate plan. I think that tells you the difference. And so I think there would be a big emphasis in a Biden administration in all cabinet departments. I think there's right now there's, you know, it's, as you say, it's actually not clear where he stands. If you remember, you mentioned Pennsylvania when he was there, he said, I will not ban fracking. I repeat, I will not ban fracking. And he was speaking in Western Pennsylvania where there are a lot of jobs and income in rural and semi-rural communities that depend on fracking on shale. So I think, I think he's a kind of a realist uh, that he's going to push a strong climate plan, much stronger than Obama did. At the same time, he's the former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he realizes that America's current position in energy gives it a flexibility and an influence that it didn't have before. And I don't think he'll want to give that up. And I don't think he would want to be the president who presides over a really rapid increase in oil imports. So I think he's going to, he has to straddle that. And as you say, he, there are different factions that he has to deal with in the Democratic Party. He needs to get, bring out the Bernie supporters in November. He really needs them. They can't stay home. But he also needs the, the kind of the people in the center, uh, the independents. And so he needs to have a kind of a big tent. Dan. Can there be politics as normal in a world of perpetual fires that we're certainly living through at the moment in California? Uh, how, how seriously should we be taking what seems, at least in California, to be this imminent ecological catastrophe, well, an, an apocalypse? Or am I exaggerating? As you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the lights literally went out in San Francisco. One day during uh, lunchtime, it was dark because of the fires. How seriously should we be taking well, this I th I seeming think apocalypse? Well, I think it's complicated. And, you know, in the book, I talk about the solar revolution, how solar costs have come down. Solar and wind are going to grow a lot. But I think California does need to be a little careful in how fast it moves to renewables because of the 
fact that it, you don't have the same flexibility to manage your electric power system uh, when you have extreme situations like those fires and those heat waves. So, you know, in a way you need natural gas. I mean, we're getting a little in the weeds here to balance out wind and solar, to maintain the stability of the system. You know, and that's something that I think otherwise you are going to continue to have uh, rolling brownouts and blackouts in California uh, until such day as you have really significant storage electricity. But, you know, that's a bet. So, you know, you have, you have multiple things going on at the same time. I wonder if a change in the electoral college law would dramatically change the nature of climate politics, suddenly make California in particular more powerful in terms of the shaping well, of policy. You know, I think uh, a change in electoral laws would change politics, it would sort of eliminate retail politics in the United States. I mean, it's, it's very interesting because obviously after 2016, a lot of people wanted to do it. But, you know, it would, it would turn, it could turn politics more into kind of a sweepstake where somebody who has the most money just spends the most money and through without actually having to meet and deal with, with voters. So, you know, I think you have to think that through. But I do think you're going on a, Andrew, on a very important point, which we all have to be worried about. And I say this, you know, wearing a historian's hat, whether we could face, you know, the most serious crisis of the political institutions of this country since the 1930s. And I know other people feel, feel that too. The combination, you know, of what's happening in politics, with the me mechanisms, the legitimacy of the election, um, you know, normally we think elections, you would say it's going to be over on number, November 3rd. You know, there's a lot of sense that this is not going to be over on November 3rd, and it might go on for some time. You know, and to the rest of the world, to the Vladimir Putins, to the Xi Jinping's, they don't mind seeing U.S. politics in uh, disarray and, and the legitimacy of the system itself being called into question. So I, you know, have a sense of, you know, of risk as we go through what's a little more than a month now to this election, how it's going to play out. Well, that is the new map, Daniel Jurgens, uh, masterful new analysis of energy politics and the reality of this trinity of, of energy great powers in the early part of the 21st century. Daniel, in, in these strange COVID times, I know you're in Washington, D.C., in addition to your new map. What else should people be reading in these strange times? Well, I want to read David Rubenstein's book on leadership to actually think through time when we need leadership, uh, what works. And I'm certainly looking forward to reading Peter Baker and Susan Glasser's new biography of uh, James Baker, who had been Secretary of State and helped negotiate the end of the Cold War, both for understanding negotiations and at a time to understand, to look at a time seeing that the U.S. political system worked better than it is today and what lessons we can take away from it. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. 
Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at Lit Hub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.